Amen. Thank you, David. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's good to be back with all of you this morning uh, after a week in the mountains with my family. Uh, we continue this morning in a series in these obscure books for many of us, the Minor Prophets right at the end of the Old Testament. It's a part of the scripture that often uh, the evangelical church doesn't have a lot to do with, unfortunately, uh, but we believe there's a lot for us to glean here. We come this morning to the prophet Zephaniah, and this is going to be a very familiar passage and verse for those of you who've been in the church for some time. One of the definite high watermarks in all of the scriptures uh, and something that we really need to hear from this morning, at least I do. So if you would read with me, we're going to read beginning in verse 11 of chapter 3 all the way to verse 20. Uh, You just follow along in your worship folder. It'll be on the screen behind me, I believe, as well, or you're welcome to uh, grab a pew Bible. I didn't write down the page number, so uh, you may find Zephaniah about the time I'm finishing, if you attempt that, uh, some of us, so... Uh, but you can, you can follow along however you desire. Let's read together, beginning in verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame, because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your, profound, your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst the people humble and lowly, and they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let your hands not grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all of the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is God's word. Uh, Being in the mountains this last week reminded me of a story a friend told me years ago. He was driving through the mountains, a Central American country, the mountains with a missionary. Uh, He was visiting there. I can't remember which country. It doesn't really matter. But it was an absolutely beautiful day, as he told the story. Blue skies. The sun was shining. And they were driving along a mountain ridge. So if you can imagine... And uh, down in the valley, as they were driving along, um, there were low-hanging clouds, as you might, you know, if you've been to North Carolina or some other places out west. And the missionary turned to my friend, and he said something like this. He said, do you see that valley down there? There's a village in that valley, and for all they know, today's a cloudy day. Now, the story's always stuck with me, and it's a good explanation for what we're trying to do as we continue this morning in our sermon series in the Minor Prophets. Uh, We've said over and over again that life is really about perspective. 
that the way you feel about your life, whether you go out into life with courage and faith or, you know, I mean, full of strength and confidence, whatever it might be, or in discouragement and fear and cowardice, whatever, which of those two depends upon whether you view your life from the top down or from the bottom up. And that was true for these people that these prophetic books were written to originally. They were going through a very difficult time. God was coming against them to exile them, to kick them out of the land and to send them into the land of their oppressor where they would be cruelly treated for, you know, a hundred years and and longer. And so it's a very difficult time, and it's true for us as well, that often when we're going through hard times, if you start with your circumstances, if you start from the bottom and move up, if you go from the bottom up, then too often you'll mistake low-hanging clouds for a stormy day and not realize that in actuality the sky is blue and the sun is shining. You'll have the wrong perspective. But if you start with your theology, if you start from the top and move down, things will often look quite different. The same set of circumstances will look different. You'll look at the sky and see the cloud and you'll say, it's not a cloudy day, that's just a cloud. And behind it's the sun. So Christians live from the top down, not from the bottom up. And in order to live like that, you need to develop the correct theological perspective. And that's what these books are about. That's what we've been saying. And so I want to reiterate again this morning, theology matters. Being certain about what you know about God is what gets you through times of uncertainty. Theology creates the right theological perspective, the right perspective on life. And that's why we've got to stop saying things in the church, like, I don't want to know theology, just make it practical. Right? That doesn't help anybody, and it assumes that you can't be theological and practical, which is just wrong. What we need, according to the Scriptures, is to know God. This is eternal life, Jesus says, John seventeen three. What? That you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So that's our goal. That's our aim, and particularly in this series. So this morning... One of the things that you have to know, you have to know if you're going to make it through particularly hard times in your life and not crumble, is what Zephaniah says here. Isn't it amazing? Did you see it in verse 17? That God loves you, that he sings over you, that he's delighted in you. That There's a song that God is singing over you if you're in Christ Jesus, even this morning as we sit in this room. So that's what we want to talk about this morning is God's song. And here's what we're going to do under three headings, okay? First, when we think about God's song, first, why, why do we need to hear it? What is it about our lives that causes us we need to hear this song? Secondly, how do we come to hear it? And then thirdly, what changes? What, what's the change that would happen in us if we really began to tune our ears to the song that God is singing over us? So God's song, why we need it, how we hear it. How it changes us when we hear it. Those are our three points, and they correspond to the three points in your outline. So just follow along with me if you would. Beginning just here with why we need to hear God's song. And the answer is because of what God says through Zephaniah in verse 15, if you look there. That there are judgments against us, we're told, in verse 15. Now, if you owe somebody a debt, and they take you to court. My father's a judge, and so I, I asked him about this this week. You know, the judge can issue a judgment. And a judgment is a legal rendering that no matter what the circumstances, the debt must be paid. We owe God a debt. He created us. He's loved us all throughout our lives. Every single breath 
that we breathe is on loan from him. And yet instead of giving to him the love and the loyalty and the heart, affection and obedience that we owe him, what the scripture says is we've turned away and rebelled against him. We've set our hearts on other things, even good things. We've prioritized them over him. We've sinned, the Bible says, all of us. And God is called in the debt. Now this is the reality for the people that, that, that this book is being written to. For the people of Judah during the reign of King Josiah, verse 1, chapter 1. The exile. God is coming. And he's going to kick them out of his land. He's calling in the debt that their sin has created. And, and so God's coming. And, and Zephaniah is writing about this event. But according to the Bible... And here's what's fascinating. is the, This is not just something, this idea of judgments that are against us. It's not just uh, something that's an objective fact, though it was for these people. And it is for every single one of us if we're not in Christ. It is also something that we know and even feel internally. So listen to the Apostle John. I wish I would have printed this scripture passage for you because it fits so well. But he, des- he describes the struggle that we have in our hearts with believing the gospel in his letter, 1 John 3. If you want to turn there, you can. Verses 19 through 21. Here's what John says. He says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So John says there's something about the way our hearts work that no matter what's going on in our lives, kind of the, the clutter behind everything that's happening out here in our lives is this sense of our hearts kind of coming after us in condemnation. And I'll be honest with you, I never have to work hard to feel guilty. I have to work really hard not to. It doesn't take much to make me feel condemned. And I know not everybody struggles with that, but I would say most of us, if we were honest in the room, do. And I want you to know that, because as my friends, you need to know that in caring for my heart. That I don't have to feel, I don't need condemnation from out here. Because no matter how loud the voices might be, I promise you, it cannot, it cannot be louder than what's going on inside of my heart. My heart condemning itself. The judgments, feeling the judgments of God. Now, if you're like me, and I think a lot of you might be, then we're in good company. Uh, this past week was, you know, we, we celebrated the Reformation. And so take Martin Luther, for example. I thought a lot about him this week. All Hallows' Eve and all that. Before his great discovery of justification by faith, Luther was haunted by a guilty conscience. Uh, the medieval Christianity he was a part of was profoundly works-based, and Martin Luther had a very sensitive conscience, and it was a recipe for disaster, actually for salvation, but first disaster in his life. Luther's heart condemned him. And the Christianity that he was a part of told him that he needed to do good works to gain salvation. But the problem was, no matter how hard he tried to do these good works, he knew he must do. He could never do enough good works to quiet his conscience. And so he was a tormented man. He used a German word, okay? So splash zone warning on the front row, whatever. Um, But but, but I use the word because there's really no English translation, and it's kind of cool to say German. But the word was anfektung. Anfektung. And it has no English equivalent. It means something like, people go back and forth, something like assault. 
And as soon as I say that, some of you know exactly what's meant by the word, don't you? It was Luther's word to describe the inner doubt and fear and despair and pangs of consciousness, conscious, conscience that he lived with. This constant sense that I don't quite measure up, that God, I know God to be a judge who hates sin, and I'm a sinner, and therefore logic dictates to me that he must hate me too. And this guilty conscience that constantly assaults the heart to make me unsure of my standing with God. And for Luther, it was so profound that it created insomnia and depression and even physical illness. But it also birthed the Protestant Reformation. More about that in a minute. What we can learn is a couple of things from this example. Uh, First, like Martin Luther, most people, most of the time, Excuse me, let me say that again. Like Martin Luther, most people of the time that he was in were terrorized by God. They really were. They lived terrorized by him. Now, we look at that and we say, well, isn't it great we've gotten past that? Isn't it great we've progressed? You know, what the old theologians call that the terror of the holy is with us no more. Isn't that great? And my answer is, I'm not so sure. See, everything about modern Christianity, from the music to the liturgies to the architecture of the building, all of these things seems to be designed to do one thing, to de-terrorize people and make them comfortable. The modern church wants people to be comfortable, and that's a big mistake. Because the lesson we learn from Martin Luther's example, and I think from our text, is that genuine spiritual experience never begins with being comfortable. It begins with anvectum. It begins with inner disquiet. It begins with a troubled conscience. And something has shifted. For example, we no longer meet in sanctuaries. And the word sanctuary describes a container for the holy, a place where you meet with the holy. Now, we don't meet in sanctuaries anymore. We meet in auditoriums. And an auditorium is a room where an audience gathers to watch a performance. Something's changed. People of faith in Martin Luther's day experienced soul anguish over the debt they knew they owed God. It was the source of their crisis of faith. But for people today, the source of most spiritual angst and crisis is that they feel God owes them something and he's not coming through on his part of the deal. And that's the spiritual crisis of the day. Not a crippling sense of guilt and condemnation, but a crippling sense of entitlement and false security and Friends, that's not progress. It's an indication of, it's not an indication of spiritual enlightenment. It's not even rational. The scripture says there are judgments against us. Now, just a note. We tend to get very frustrated with people who struggle like this. Now, this may be a little self-serving, this note, okay? They get their feelings hurt too easily. They apologize too much. They can be indecisive. They can... Um, They can be exhausting because it it feels like they're constantly struggling. And you know why it feels like they're constantly struggling? Because they are. Just in here. Okay? And and it comes out. If you get close enough, it's like an infection. If you get close enough to them, it, it happens to you too. And so you have to constantly reassure them. And we tend to get aggravated. We tend to get aggravated. But listen, we shouldn't because they are the most spiritually sensitive among us. Now, that sounds self-serving because I'm one of these people. So I guess I'm saying cut, cut us some slack, please. 
be patient with those of us who deal with this. And, and if you could see into the struggle, if you could see into the struggle, you'd understand the last thing we need is for people to come down hard. But not only that, second, the way most people cope with this condemning heart that Luther experienced is by doing what Luther did. Martin Luther became religious, not just religious. I mean, he became, he became a monk. And Roland Ban- Banton, who wrote probably the definitive biography of Luther called Here I Stand, he's in it, he wrote this. He said, Luther became a monk in order to save his soul. He was a monk, and he would be a monk to the uttermost. The purpose of his strivings was to compensate for his sins, but he could never feel the ledger was balanced. Now, if you remember the story of the prodigal son, do you remember the boy owed his father a debt? He asked his father for his inheritance, and he took it and went away, and he spent it all, and he returns home. He owes his father this great debt, all of the money he had taken and wasted. And what's his plan for getting back into the family? Do you remember in that moment, in that story Jesus told? He says to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll go to my father, and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What does this young man want to do? He wants to pay back the debt. And when Martin Luther went into the monastery, he went because he knew he owed a debt to God, and his strategy was, I will go and I'll be good, and maybe I can do enough good that it will pay back all the bad I've done. And when he went into the monastery, he wasn't yet a Christian. And what's fascinating is, is if you read a story, the Anfektung, it followed him there. And so let me just offer a warning to us this morning. First, let me say this. Let me say something to the non-Christian who's here this morning. You might be thinking, I don't know about all this. Uh, you know, and I can't say what I'd like to say because this is church. Uh, but let me tell you what the Bible says uh, in response to that. Paul in Romans 1 and 2 says that although we may... That, that although we all possess what John Calvin called a seed of religion in us, we, we often um, stuff it down because it's too painful to live with. And the Bible says that every single one of us, every single human being, innately knows himself or herself to be a sinner before a holy God. And that can be terrifying. So what we do uh, with that terror is we try to deny it, we, we for, try to forget it, and then what happens is, is you lay in bed at night, And it's there as you go to sleep, and then you wake up, and it's there sitting on your chest in the quiet moment before you busy yourself with the work of the day to hope to forget. And so we push it down, and we push it down, and we stuff it down. And can I be your friend and say, don't do that. Instead, struggle with it, and be careful that you don't make the mistake that so many others have made to think that conversion, changing your life, means becoming good in order to make up for all the bad that you've done. That's a great temptation. And so let me say something to the Christian who's here this morning as well, sticking with the theme of Martin Luther and the Reformation. Remember what Martin Luther said. He said, all of life is repentance. So part of the ongoing repentance in our lives is to stop trying to pay against the judgments against us with our own works of righteousness and to hear what God says in this wonderful scripture. Sing aloud, rejoice, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Fear not. And so you see there are judgments. Judgments against us. But the second thing we see then is in this passage is the song that's being sung over us. Look at verse 17 again. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. So that scripture says God sings over us. The way a mother or a father sings a lullaby over their children at bedtime, the way 
A lover serenades his beloved. Now, one of my favorite things in the whole world, and it doesn't happen often, and my kids are passing into uh, teenagerhood, and so it probably will happen less often, but one of my favorite things in the whole world is to hear my kids singing in the shower because I know if they're singing, then they're happy. Isn't, it a great, isn't that just a great thing, parents? If they're singing, they're happy. Now, what does that mean then when the scripture says that God sings over you and me? It must mean that we make him happy. Now, I say that, and immediately my heart says, eh, eh, I don't buy it. See, it's the hardest thing in the world. It's the hardest thing in the world to believe. It is the struggle underneath every struggle. It is the sin behind every sin. God is singing over us, but most often the melody is like a dog whistle. It's in a range our ears can't pick up. And so the second thing that we see in Zephaniah, what it teaches us is how we can hear the song that's being sung over us. And so see, just like with the first point, just like with the first point, God's singing is not just an objective fact that we give nod to. That's the problem. That's all it is for most of us. It's something that we're meant to experience and internalize and even repeat. And uh, the best illustration that I know to to help you understand this, there's a a lullaby that I sing to my girls at night uh, when I put them to bed. And it goes like this. It says, um, beautiful girls, daddy loves you, he loves you. It's It's just an old Andrew Peterson song. Most beautiful girl in the whole wide world. And it goes on to say, you know, I know that moons rise and time flies and sweet little girls get older, but when your tooth aches and your heart breaks, will you still cry on my shoulder? Beautiful girl. Daddy loves you. He loves you. And so I sing this to them every night because it's true. Because their dad does love them. I love them so much. And I want them to know that they're loved. But I remember one day, a few years ago, we were driving in the van. I forget where we were going. And Sarah, uh, who's my youngest, she's seven now, was in the car seat. And we're just driving along down the road. And all of a sudden, <laughs> in the back of the car, I hear, beautiful girl, daddy loves you. And she just starts singing the song. And it made me so happy. Because what it meant was is she had begun to internalize the words that were being sung over her. Uh, the words were echoing around in her subconscious. and she was, It was just there for her in that moment. And so, just like that, how does the song God is singing over you get so inside of you that it begins to bounce around in your subconscious? You're walking around and suddenly you find yourself out of the blue humming the tune. You know? And the key is the gospel truth that we've already begun to look at in verse 15. So you can't just skip down to verse 17 unless you first understand verse 15. That's a deadly error. So verse 15, we're told, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. There were judgments, but God has taken them away. And the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2, which we read just a few minutes ago together, says that God has forgiven all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now pay close attention to the words. He says that the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, the judgment against us, in other words, he has canceled, he has set it aside, nailing it to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Paul means that God called in the debt, but instead of forcing us to pay, Jesus paid for our debt with his own blood. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus took upon himself our sin and suffered the penalty that was due to us. Death and hell, he paid for our sins. And now the record of debt that we owe to God has been canceled. It has been paid, right? The stamp, boom, paid, has gone down on it. Right? This was the discovery. This was the discovery that Luther made that sparked the Protestant Reformation and that can spark revival in our hearts too. Luther began to read his Bible. He was appointed a teacher at the college and began lecturing on Psalms. And when he came to Psalm 22, he read in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he knew that Jesus quoted that Psalm upon the cross and it hit him like a truck that it must mean that Jesus had experienced anfektung. That Jesus was rejected, that he was abandoned, that he experienced soul dread because on the cross he was made our sin and the Father turned away from him. For the first time in all eternity, Jesus reached out to his Father and there was no one there. There was no song. It was only silence. And because Jesus went to the cross and endured the Father's silence, we can have his song. And so, Luther wrote, he said, He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. I mean, that was Luther's great gospel discovery. Luther came to see that the love and acceptance that he so desperately wanted from God and knew he needed did not stand at the end of all of his obedience. It met him at the very beginning because the solution for his sin was not his obedience. It wasn't his righteousness. And that's the truth that changed his heart. That God's song doesn't come at the end of the day. It meets us at the moment that we open our eyes in the morning. He has taken away the judgments that were against us and all that's left is love. On Wednesday night, Madison Bumgarner walked out of the dugout to pitch the ninth inning of Game 7 of the World Series. Like every child that ever has played baseball has practiced with his dad in the backyard. And he didn't know it yet, but between the, the top of the ninth and the bottom of the ninth, his dad had sent, or, yeah, between the top of the ninth and the bottom of the ninth, his dad had sent him a text. And here was his dad's text. Here's what it said. It said, OMG. <laughs> it's always funny when 50-year-olds try to do the OMG thing, right? OMG. You are so much more than awesome, I couldn't be more proud. But he hadn't won the game yet. And so why send the text before the bottom of the ninth? And here's when they interviewed his dad after the game, here's what he said. He said, I knew that he wouldn't read the text before the game was over, but I wanted him to know that this is what his daddy thought of him no matter what happened. See, Madison Bumgarner's dad sang over his son on Wednesday, but he did it at the beginning of the ninth inning, not after he'd won. He wanted his son to know he loved him no matter the outcome of the game. And to know God loves you like that, that he sings over you before you step out of the dugout, before you get out of bed in the morning, not after the game's on the line and you pull out the win, that's the gospel truth that can open your ears to hear God's singing over you. So lastly... And as we prepare our hearts to come to this table, then we get, we see the judgments against us and we see the singing over us. But lastly, I want you to see how it can produce peace within us. And so the last thing here is we, we see what hearing God's song can do uh, to you and can do in you. The prophet says, verse 17, 
The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you by his love. Now, in the Mark passage we began with this morning, Jesus and his disciples are on the Sea of Galilee. And the wind uh, is howling and the waves are raging and the hearts, the boat is rocking and about to break apart and the hearts of the disciples are quaking and Jesus stands up and speaks to the storm, quiet, be still. And Mark says the wind ceased, (laughs) I love this, verse 39, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. It's a picture of what can happen in our hearts. Out of this passage, Jesus is saying, quiet, be still. And he means for there to be a great calm that comes over our lives as well. The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. Now in my office, I have a glass case that I'm slowly filling with my gospel paraphernalia. And above the big bookcase is a picture depicting this scene, and I keep it there because I stole it from Connie. It was in Connie's office. I said, I've got to have that so I can look at it every day. And I keep it there because this really is the struggle of my life. Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, and he might as well say, grow, rings, grow wings and fly to Zimbabwe. Right? Because that's about how good a shot I have of waking up and not being anxious in the first five minutes of the day. So I personally have a lot invested in this idea that God can love, can, God's love can quiet me, that it might be able to silence the inner critic, the judgments. And, but that's exactly what is promised here in Zephaniah 3. So let me just try to apply this in a couple of ways, uh, and then we're going to come to the table this morning. So for example, suffering. I know a lot of you are going through really hard times because you tell me. And if you don't know God sings over you, then normal Monday mornings will prove intimidating, but when things really start to go bad, I mean, when things really go south in your life, It'd be really hard not to just melt down because you see the real pain behind suffering is when it makes you feel like you're forsaken, like God's punishing you. And these people Zephaniah is ministering to here are about to go into exile. They're about to experience God turning away from them. And yet even in that, even when he comes to correct and to judge his people, Zephaniah says, but he loves you. Don't forget, he delights in you. He's singing over you. And that transforms how you experience suffering. You can face it with an inner calm. You won't catastrophize. The wind may pick up, the waves may begin to crash against your boat, whatever it might be, but on the inside there will be quiet. You can say, even in this, I know God loves me, he's doing good to me. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. The opposite, of course, is if you don't know God sings over you, you'll live with a pervasive fear. Every little setback will be a discouragement to you, but if his song comes inside and begins to reverberate around your subconscious You'll be full of confidence and strength. Fear not, Zephaniah says, verse 16. Let not your hands grow weak. You'll have strength. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3. In other words, God's song can create in us an inner composure and strength, a willingness to accept whatever comes from God's hand, to be content and to be level on good days and bad days and even really bad days, but but really not just level. Look what Zephaniah says, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all of your heart. I mean, notice the connection. God rejoices over you, he says. He exults over you with singing, and so we should rejoice. We should exult, loud singing and shouting. In other words, God's song over us puts a song in us. And one of the things I constantly, constantly pray for us as a people and for myself is for joy. Just joy. 
Because there's a roller coaster, a performance roller coaster, up, down, good day, bad day, that will suck all the joy out of your life. And most of us are exhausted, and the reason we're so exhausted is because there's work underneath our work, and it's what I've already described. It's the debt of sin we owe. And we make the mistake of trying to repay debt. That's not Christianity. Christianity says on a good day, Christianity says, listen, do you hear it? Do you hear that? It's God singing. And then on a bad day, listen. Do you hear it? There it is again. I love the line, verse 18, that follows immediately after all that great stuff in verse 17. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. So verse 17 leads to verse 18. So when verse 17 becomes real to you, your life will turn into a festival. And at festival times, the roads to Jerusalem will be filled with people talking together, singing songs as they journeyed up to Jerusalem for the days and days of celebration, eating good food, drinking good wine, enjoying one another, telling stories of God's faithfulness. That's what our lives should look like, Zephaniah says. And that's what our gatherings on Sunday morning should feel like. So let's repent of our joylessness. God's song over us puts a song in us. Oh Lord, do that. And lastly, and probably most fundamentally, God's song can help you through suffering and it can give you joy, but it can also decenter you. If you have a quiet heart, a quiet heart is characterized by inner calm and confidence and an irrepressible joy but then the last thing is also a deep, a deep humility. If you don't know God sings over you, you'll live your life as if it all depends upon you. And that's where the anxiety and the pressure comes from. Okay? And that's pride. But look at what Zephaniah says, verses 11 and 12. He says, I will remo- The Lord says, I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty on my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. Now, I'm out of time, so let me just say, the exulting in verse 11 describes the person who's always making much of themselves. But there are two ways of doing that, either by boasting or by dwelling in self-pity and despair. So pride's making yourself the big deal. It's making yourself the center. And you can do that by dwelling on your successes and, and, you know, making sure everybody else gives you the credit that you deserve or by dwelling on your failures and inwardly just beating yourself up. And the solution to both is the song. When his love and his grace for you become the big deal in your life, you'll stop thinking about yourself so much. And that is the doorway to joy and peace. So if pride is the seed of every sin, then this is the cure. A joy in God that surpasses the joy we find in earthly things. An inner confidence and strength that allows us to persevere in faith all the way to the end. Not giving in to discouragement. Oh God, do that work in us this morning. As the hymn writer says, return to thy rest as we come to this table. Hear these words. Return to thy rest, my soul, and rejoice. Let Christ be thy boast, for thou art his choice. And though sin and Satan and their hellish guest do vex and dishearten, God's song is thy rest. Let's pray together this morning, can we? Father, we come now to your table. And we ask that as we hear the music and as we take the cup and the bread to our lips, that we would, maybe faintly, but with increasing volume and strength, hear the love song that you sing over us. May it quiet our hearts as we gather around this table as a people this morning. May it cause us to exult and to glory in you, so that in humility we might find 
the joy and the peace that you so long to desperately, you desperately long to give us uh, so that we might be a people full of good works that honor and glorify your name. That's our hope and prayer, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. At this point in our service, we are sending one another out into the world. And so as you go out, much like Madison Bumgarner did in the bottom of the ninth, or if you go out to something hard, whatever it is that you would go out into, uh, in this benediction, hear the song of your father. It meets you right here, not on the other side of whatever it is you go to do. It meets you here at the beginning, promising you that no matter how it goes out there, he could not be more for you. His love for you is true. He sings a love song over you, so rejoice and receive it, and may his song over you create a song in you that would carry you through whatever it is he calls you to. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. One thing before you go. We didn't take the mercy offering, so there will be men at the doors. Uh, if you have a mercy offering, you can put that in the, in the, in the uh, baskets they'll have. So thank you. Uh, God bless you. Go in peace. Yeah.